electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. It is the last day of the month, and oh, what a month it has been for stocks. One of the best of the year, the best for some indexes. Retail traders, they're back. Money, it's flowing in, and nothing can stop this market from going higher right? Wrong. There's always risks, and we're going to hit them, along with where opportunities still are, and a great lineup for you today. Stephanie Link, Liz Young, Josh Brown, and Pete Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. All right, that's ahead, but first, let's get a quick hit on how your money is doing, and the markets are, eh, they're mostly muted. They're mixed. Dow up fractionally, NASDAQ down fractionally, but that does not tell the story of the month. Check this out. The Dow is now on pace for its sixth up month in the past seven. The S&P 500 on pace for its 54th record close and higher of the year. Wow. And a seven-month win streak, the first time that's happened for the S&P since December of 2017. All right. Stephanie Link, let's begin with you. And I'm going to throw a little shade at myself because I opened up the show like that to make a point. When people like me wearing makeup on TV like this say there's nothing that can stop a market rally, isn't that time maybe sit up and take notice of some of the possible risks that are out there amid all the bullishness? Well, there's always something to worry about. I've always said I worry when I don't worry, right? Because that means we're complacent. And so we don't. We still have uncertainties with Delta, with Ida, with peak growth. Um, I think I've been saying consistently, we're at peak growth. We're at peak earnings growth. But we are not going to be, we're going to be above trend. We're going to continue to grow. And I think that is supportive of solid earnings, double-digit earnings, and very solid GDP growth. Maybe it's not going to be 8 9 10% like we're seeing right now. Maybe it falls to about 4% or so next year. But that's still very supportive, again, of earnings and of stocks. And that's why stocks are at highs, right? Look, September is always a seasonal, I think it's always seasonally soft, right? August and September. And so and now we have the end of earnings and now we know the Fed wants to taper. So we have things to worry about. Let's climb that wall of worry. I think stocks go higher into the end of the year. I mean, yeah, Josh, and I was trying to sort of poke a little bit of fun at the media and, and, you know, folks like me and saying this kind of stuff, because there are so many things. COVID cases resurgent here and in China. You talked about hurricanes. We talk about Afghanistan. We talk about all those things. And yet the market continues to plow higher, even to Stephanie's point, in what is a seasonally weak, historically speaking, of course, anything can change, part of the year. I mean, what are you hearing? What are you advising your clients to do? couple of things. First of all, you are the media, Sully. I watched you yesterday, I think for three hours. Is everyone on vacation? Are you the last last man standing? You did a great job. Um, I want to correct something about this being a seasonally weak period. We're going into September, 
And actually, September starts the best six months of the year. The thing is, though, some of the biggest crashes in history have occurred in late September through October. So it's actually not Mm. seasonally weak right now, seasonally strong. However, you do get these historic and and memorable bouts of volatility. I don't invest based on that stuff. I have have a lot of respect for uh, Jeff and Yale Hirsch and the Stock Traders Almanac, but I don't think that stuff's really actionable. If you tell me that... You know, 58% of the time, there's a 20% correction in October. I'll say, okay, are we in the 58% of the time or are we in the 42? Oh, I don't know. We'll find out. I'll tell you in November. So forget about that. Here's the big picture. (laughs) We have strategist after strategist come on the show. Sully, not your fault. You're not usually hosting. And they tell us that we're overdue for a correction and that there's going to be, you know, a a 10% dip or big volatility. It's not a profound statement. On average, every 18 months, you get a 10% sell-off in the stock market. So it's, it, saying that is like saying, oh, it might be 75 degrees in San Diego today. Yeah, we understand that. What I continue to point out is, listen to these year-to-date returns. Facebook plus 38%, Google plus 65%, Microsoft plus 38%, and now, yesterday, Apple finally breaks out to a new all-time high. Apple's only up, Mm. I say only in air quotes, 15% year-to-date. As long as those four stocks, which represent 40% of the NASDAQ, 25% of the S&P, throw in NVIDIA, throw in a couple of others, as long as those stocks are holding up, everything that you hear is is just feelings. It's just commentary. And that has been the case all year. So what else do you want to talk about? You want to talk about divergences in the Russell 1000 value? It doesn't matter. They're not big enough. Okay? So this is where I am. I where agree. Been all year. It's been the right By the call, way, don't. And I hope Josh, more people recognize don't that. Jump, don't jump the show because we're going to talk about the narrowness of the technology market, the ETFs. But that's in like 10 minutes or something like that. But it, these are good points. <laughs> And I agree with pretty much all of them, by the way, spending part of my childhood in Encinitas, California, go Chargers, who play at SoFi Field. Let's bring in Liz Young. All right, Liz, I hear what Josh is saying. Certainly, he makes a great point about statistical averages, right? You can be up nine years, fall 20% one year, and suddenly you're down on average. It's called math. Um, But there are risks out there that the market does appear to be ignoring for whatever reason. What is the whatever reason? Yeah, well, I, I don't want to be one of the strategists that comes on and does what Josh just said and, and call for a 10% correction here. So I won't do that. But what I will tell you is that I do think September is going to be at, at best a pause in the rally. And a lot of it is because there's no new good news coming. Steph already mentioned it. We're kind of at this pause in earnings season. There's not a lot of news that's going to come out on earnings. I think earnings are great. Earnings are strong. Corporate America is doing really, really well. We're not going to hear a lot about it in September. What we do have, though, is the Fed dot plot on the docket. I feel like I'm the only one who's talking about that. It happened in June the last time. The market didn't like it because it moved rate hike expectations forward. I think there's a chance that that happens again in September. We also have this debate in Washington, and the market doesn't usually like that either. We've got the budget, and we're forgetting, I think, too, to talk about the fact that we have tax hikes that would be included in that budget. I think that's part of why you saw the sentiment 
data get hit in August because people are expecting tax hikes to come at the end of the year. So there there are definitely risks out there. There are always risks out there, though. So what do you do in September about that? You use it as an opportunity to position yourself. If you have a bunch of cash on the sidelines, I don't know that there's a lot of people left with cash on the sidelines at this point, but if you have cash on the sidelines, it's an opportunity to position yourself, and we can talk about some of those trades later. But the last thing I would say about this is I think the bigger worry is about feelings, and Josh mentioned this too, but it is about feelings, and it's about the idea that we haven't seen a correction in so long, so we forgot what that looks like. And there are a lot of new investors in this market that have never seen a correction like that. So when it happens, it's going to test their conviction. It's going to test all of our conviction, and we have to be able to hold on through it. Can I respond yeah, and, to that and, real and, you quickly? Know, Pete, I guess. Quickly. Oh, yeah, quickly. go ahead, Josh. The, the, average, the, the average NASDAQ stock uh, at its low a week ago was down 30%. I don't think that nobody's seen a correction. I think somebody with an SPY portfolio, Liz, you're 100% right. If they're just a Vanguard index investor, they, they ain't seen nothing yet, probably because of those four stocks that I was talking about at the top. But I do think most investors, especially the younger investors who got started in the last year, they've seen plenty of turmoil and volatility because the top 10 Robinhood list, uh, those are the stocks that really have had the biggest drawdowns, the most volatility. Um, so I... I I, I don't think it's quite as black and white, but I do agree with your point that if there's a market-wide correction, it will take people by surprise, given how long it's been since the last one. But I guess that's probably always the case. All right. Sorry, Sully. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no worries, Josh. I mean, Pete, I think those are good points. And I think it's funny because doing this, you know, 25 years, Pete, it's like we used to have these corrections where we'd kind of just go slowly down for a couple of months and you go down 12% and then the market kind of chugs back up. That seems to have been replaced by these. Now, obviously, we had a pandemic, of course, but these violent 15 and 20% drops in a matter of weeks. We've had a few of those the last 10 years. So we haven't yet had the garden variety correction. Instead, we've had these steep collapses, these epic ski wipeouts, right? And then the market gets up, puts its skis yeah. back on and goes down the hill. Uh, is there anything that you see out there that we've either mentioned or maybe haven't mentioned that would most worry you? Um, not so much on the worry side uh, right now, Sully, other than the fact that when you look at volatility and it continues to drop back down and we can't sustain over 20, we jump up towards 24 just a week and a half or so ago. And before you know it, we're back underneath 20. And now here we are once again, right back at about that 16 level. So. You know, John and I are always talking about volatility, we're talking about volume, we're talking about velocity and those types of things. And the volumes are absolutely extraordinary right now in the, the, the derivatives markets. It's absolutely crazy. We're averaging about 35 million per day or 36 million per day in August. We've had a great year already, had a great 2020 in terms of volumes just consistently being there. But, you know, we've had that velocity that you're talking about. When we get moves, they are dramatic. Uh, but for the most part, they've been just sort of this steady as she goes type of a thing. As a matter of fact, uh, Sully, and, 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 and it was brought up by Josh, but I'll tell you what, where do we see some of that activity of that huge volumes that I'm talking about? Yesterday is an absolute great example of that. We see that NASDAQ didn't even look back, just continued to rip to the upside. And we were seeing buyer after buyer over the previous couple of sessions in Apple, in Microsoft, in Amazon, in NVIDIA, in Intel, in all kinds of different names 
on that tech semiconductor side of things. There's no doubt about it. But we also started seeing about a week and a half ago or so some of the Chinese names finally starting to make a bit of a turn. And we saw a lot of volumes in the FXI, for instance. We've seen those huge volumes I believe John talked about yesterday where they were using this lower volatility to buy that spy upside call. But also, Sully, importantly on that, they definitely were buying protection, not buying for negativity reasons. They were buying for protection in the spider as well. So that's kind of what we are looking at right now. So that actually does slow down some of these moves to the downside if people do have that quote-unquote insurance or protection. Yeah. Yeah. Very quickly, very quickly. How is the options market, okay, your world altered the way we look at the equity markets, right? This isn't even 10 or 15 years ago when it was, you still, then back then, you know, hey, JB, I'm going to sell ITT, right? You sold stocks. Now you don't have to do that. You can just do your hedging right. in the options market. How much has that maybe changed the whole volatility and all the historical averages that we talk about? Well, I think, I think it's definitely had a monstrous influence. And, Sully, I always go back to the financial crisis and say, you know what? When they removed leverage from the markets, where is leverage? It's in the derivatives markets. That's where you get leverage. When you can, you know, you can, you can hedge off a position of 1,000 shares with 10 option contracts. I mean, that is a lot to do with what we are, we're talking about right now and probably some of the muted yeah. moves as well because of the fact that people are able to do this. They're getting educated or more educated all the time. The derivatives markets, you know, Sully, it used to be unbelievable. If we had a day over 20 million contracts just two or three or four years ago, that was huge. Now we're doing 35 million to 45 million in a single day, and, it, and it's starting. that's starting to feel very much the wow. norm. So I don't think this is a trend that's slowing down. I think this is something that will continue to see accelerate to the upside. Yeah. All about market structure. I can't say it enough. All right, let's add now to the conversation and bring in somebody who's no doubt champing. It is champing, by the way, at the bit. Brian Belsky, BMO Chief Investment Strategist. He is bullish, just upping his target on the S&P 500 to 4,800. However, Brian, this is television. If I had to put you on the spot and say of everything that we mentioned, if you had to rank the top one or two risks out there, I know you're bullish, but you had some client is screaming at you to take the other side. How would you rank it? Well, I'll steal a line from uh, my good friend and uh, colleague and client, uh, Stephanie Link. You worry when you don't worry. And client was all over me this morning about only giving a 7% upside. Well, this is the same client that's been massively underperforming uh, for the last 12 or 18 months because they've been trying to time the market. And so there's no doubt that that um, market corrections were defined in September, but really bottomed out and, and finalized in October. And that's what Josh was really talking about. So say if you get a 5 to 8% correction, which everybody and their mother, brother, sister, cousin, uncle, and all the smart person strategists on your show try to, uh, try to call, which is a fool's game, you can't do that. Then you got 12 or 15% upside from there, Brian. And, and listen, I, I think the number one worry that I would have, quite frankly, is that some of these naysayer strategists, and you know who they are, come on your show and say, now I'm bullish. That would make me worry uh, because they'd be forced to throw in the towel whether or not it's pressure internally or not. But listen, I, I think this market, as I've been saying since 2009, 2010, um, is going to go down as the biggest bull market uh, in history. And a 20 to 25-year bull market, one that was doubted whether or not it's climb the wall of worry or whatever, 
But it's done a wonderful job of having these rotational corrections. It's had a wonderful job of transitioning from what we believe is happening right now from a momentum market to more of an earnings-driven market. Our multiple assumptions went down a full point because earnings have been yeah. so strong. And, but I think the biggest thing that people are missing is that the strength of the North American economy and the fundamental structure of North America favors it from an equity perspective. And that's why we're so bullish on Canada. It's seven multiple points lower than the United States in a country that is excessively correlated to the United States. You want a backdoor way to buy value relative to the U.S., you buy Canada right now. I believe BMO is Bank of Montreal. So throwing one down for the home team, Brian. We appreciate that. It's, by the way, I believe it now is the most vaxxed large country or one of in the world. I think Canada has passed us as well. Here, I do have a question, though. I pointed out the other day, Brian, that you know, even with the markets going up, the forward multiple of the S&P has come down because earnings, to your point, have been so spectacular. But answer me this. In your increase in Target, you raised your earnings estimate by 10.5%, 210 a share for the S&P from 190, but you only revised up your Target by 7%. Why the gap? Why raise earnings up almost 11 but not your estimate on the S&P 500 itself? Great question, Sully. Uh, you know, we've been publishing targets on the market uh, on the S&P 500 since 1997. And what we try to do is under-promise and over-deliver. And what we found, especially in the price side, is we run a dividend discount model, a PE regression model, and an earnings regression model. I think I just lost half the audience. Uh, but what's interesting is that our dividend discount model has been excessively accurate. And we do try to underpromise and overdeliver. This is the second time we've upped our target this year. We did it in May, mm -hmm. uh, and we did it obviously yesterday. I actually think the 210 number is probably too low, Brian. I think the 210 number is probably too low in earnings, wow. which gives us an opportunity to actually be higher. I think the market could be higher than 4800. But again, you don't want to have a pie in the sky type of market. Uh, target without having the underpinnings of earnings. And I think the earnings, I think, are, are being way too discounted. Stephanie talked about a potential earnings peak. But if you think about double-digit earnings growth and less than 2% long 10-year uh, treasury in a Fed that we believe is going to actually yeah. be a little bit more dovish than everybody else thinks, I mean, I think, I think this thing's going to go for a while. Oh, I've got to let you go with it. I mean, Brian, I'm, I literally am going to ask you a question I don't know the answer to, which is, so you, 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 love, you love America, you love Canada. What do we do? Just buy the TSX? I mean, what, how do we, what's the best way for a U.S. audience to play the Canadian market right now? Buy a uranium company and let it ride or what? <laughs> well, you know, we have the very good fortune of running nine portfolios, six in Canada, which are a mixture of U.S. and Canadian names and three in the United States. And we run this really cool portfolio called Anything But the Big Three. It's 40 companies in Canada that are not financials, not energy and not materials, you got some really cool companies like Waste Connections and Shopify and, and uh, Aritzia. And the reason is, is that, again, their GDP in Canada is excessively tied to the United States. And I think a company like Shopify, which you can buy in the New York Stock Exchange, is, is the kind of the best way to play it. We also run an all-cap uh, ETF in Canada that, that represents uh, things as well. So I think in, in terms of, of, of Canadian names, the financials, we think, would be the, really the pick-to-click from a, from a cash flow perspective, dividend growth perspective, in, the, in, in terms of earnings discernibility and stability. That's the place to be. Okay. Oh, Canada. There we go. Knocking one out for the home team up there in Montreal. Très bien. Brian Belsky, merci beaucoup. Thank you very much for coming on Halftime Report, Brian. Merci. Watching the TSX, folks. 
<laughs> Je vous en prie. All right. From a macro perspective, growth continues to, well, grow. The growth side, meaning technology, biotech, etc., is outperforming so-called value groups. Look at that, like the financials, industrials, etc. And that's one reason that money continues to flow in, or maybe that's why it's outperforming. Bank of America flow data is showing that growth ETFs seeing inflows for a fifth straight week. And yeah, value ETFs did see inflows for six straight weeks, although the growth inflows were four times bigger. Kind of going to Josh's point. But Steph, when you look at these two very popular ETFs, the IWF for growth and the IWD for value, it's important to note that if you think, and this is Josh's point earlier in the show, you think you're getting some big time diversification because you're buying an ETF with a thousand or whatever stocks in it, think again, five stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook make up nearly 40%. If they, for some reason, stop going up, does that mean that growth as a whole group, stops going up? Well, well, growth is actually expensive. Growth is actually trading at a 6.7 times premium to the market. Historical average is about 2.6 times. I get it. Technology's changed the world. I know it's not like it used to be, but that's a pretty big spread, right? So I think growth is expensive. Being, that being said, I have always wanted to do both, own both. I want to own a little bit of value. I want to own a little bit of secular growth. I want to have diversification. That being said, value is there's real value in value at this point in time, especially since earnings are actually going up by about 6.3% for the year, better than growth. And it's not surprising to me that it's financials are the biggest sector that's that's the cheapest. It's actually uh, at a 6.6 multiple dip point discount to the market. That compares to tech at a 6.3 multiple premium to the market. So you have to pick your spots, but you definitely want to have representation from both sides. I lean more cyclical because I lean more growth in the economy. And I think those companies are going to see better operating leverage going forward. But I have both. All right, everybody sit tight here. We're going to step out of the markets for a moment because we have a news alert right now with Meg Terrell. Meg, what do you have? Hey, Brian, according to multiple reports, two senior FDA vaccine regulators plan to uh, exit their jobs this fall in October and November. Uh, this was first reported by the industry publication BioCentury and since confirmed by multiple uh, outlets, including Stat, Politico uh, and Endpoints. Uh, they report that Marion Gruber, who's director of the FDA's Office of Vaccines Research and Review, and Phil Krauss, who's essentially uh, her deputy, plan to step down in October and November, respectively. Some of the reporting ties it to their frustrations around the process with COVID vaccines, uh, some of the decision-making being put in the hands of CDC and its outside advisory committee, some reports suggesting that there's frustration with the White House over the process for booster doses of the COVID vaccines, as the White House uh, has announced that they plan to go ahead with boosters at the end of September before it's gone through the FDA review process. Uh, so, guys, We'll try to uncover more information about what is going on with this situation. But these reports uh, that these two senior regulators are stepping down, as, of course, the FDA has a lot on its plate, Brian, uh, with upcoming COVID vaccine reviews. Back over to you. you, you Meg, before I let you go, and I, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but you're, you're an ace. You've been ace as the best reporter in the country on this from day one. Um, number one, I, it, it, does it feel like there's some sort of a political bent here only because of what you mentioned? The FDA is kind of saying no boosters. The president is saying, we're going to go boosters. And do you expect this potentially, because I don't know how these boards are made up at all, two people leaving, could that delay approval for kids? Would it delay any approvals? 
Well, it's unclear right now if it could. We've seen from these reports, the, uh, the obtained, they obtained a memo from Peter Marks, who oversees all of the sort of agency within the FDA that oversees vaccines. He says he's going to step in as the acting leader of this unit as they search for replacements here. But there's a lot of upheaval at the FDA right now. They have an acting commissioner, Janet Woodcock. Reports have suggested she is not going to be the pick for a permanent FDA commissioner. And so there's so much pressure on the FDA right now. And they've already been through a year and a half of just moving at this, what they call Operation Warp Speed, to get the vaccines done. So without having spoken to these two folks, I don't know what drove them to a step down. But certainly the situation with the FDA or the White House announcing boosters before the FDA has been able to go through that is not typical. And so you do wonder, is that contributing to it? And some of the reporting suggests it is. Well, we're going to find out more. That news just breaking now. Meg Terrell, big news certainly there from the FDA. All right, let's get back now to the markets and talk about big technology. How's that for a transition? All right, big tech, as you might have heard on this network a few times in the last, I don't know, five years, big tech continues simply to climb. Josh Brown, you own Apple, you own Amazon, you own the AAA stocks, you own Amazon, Apple, Alphabet. Any reason or any thought of selling any of those? Not at the moment, but I would just point out the whole country is long these stocks. When you think about uh, the $26 trillion in retirement assets that are invested in, in uh, the markets right now, like everybody's in. Every, every pension fund, every insurance uh, uh, product that's got a, a market link to it, every 401k, every dollar that's in index funds – it's like to, to be long Apple, be long Amazon, that is at this point to be an American investor. You almost can't avoid it. So then the question is like, well, which of these names do you want to be overweight? Because you're already in pretty much no matter who you are, unless you're sitting in cash or gold uh, for the last 10 years. So you say to yourself, okay, I already have X amount of exposure in my overall portfolio, including retirement assets, brokerage assets, etc., is Apple a, a good enough company that I want even more than the, what the market's already giving me based on cap-weighted indexes and active funds that track those uh, cap-weighted indexes and compete with them? So I've concluded, yes, it's been the right call. Uh, Apple's up like 500% over the last few years. I don't expect that rate of return to continue, but I do want to be long just because of how dominant they are. And go down the list. It's hard not to say the same thing about Alphabet. It's hard not to say the same thing about Amazon. And until something materially changes where that's not the case, yes, that's mm. where I want to be. And, you know, I don't need to have above market yeah. returns in those names to justify being overweight them because I'm not reporting my alpha to anybody. It's just what yeah. I personally yeah, Liz, want to be long. You know, Liz, I would say we talked about risks at the top of the show and we don't know what's going to happen. But. I don't think we could say there's zero regulatory risk in these names. We know the Biden administration has talked about it. Some of the FTC commissioners in their previous lives, the private sector have talked about maybe monopoly power or breakups. There is a regulatory risk. It's pretty much all the names that Josh mentioned. We've talked about the app store issues. How big is Amazon going to be? Does Google control too much of the online ad market? Sure. I, I mean, there's definitely regulatory risks there. I mean, obviously not nearly as much regulatory risk as what we're seeing in China tech right now. But still, as long term holdings, I think these names are they're going to have huge opportunity going forward. If we're talking about the short term, it comes back to that 
do we buy tech? Do we buy financials right now? In the short term, I would still lean towards financials. But over the long term, I mean, tech is the prosperity of the American economy. And these names are at the crux of that prosperity. So regulation or not, people are still going to have demand for the names. They're going to have demand for them not only as stocks, but as product providers. Pete, you got a view on tech? Yeah, love it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think most of these names, whether it's Microsoft or we go over to, to Josh's side with the technology side and we go to the semis and we go to something like an NVIDIA, Facebook, go across the board, Brian. What I've been doing over the last couple of years has been when I feel like there is an opportunity for a little bit more momentum, a move to the upside, I not only have the stock, but then I'll just double up by having calls in there as well to the upside, looking for these shorter term moves as well. So, you know, I'm doubled up in many of these various names, Facebook and Apple right now. It was Microsoft just last week looking for these kind of moves where we see this breakout to the upside. I think that right now the technology space just has an incredible room still to the upside. And I mean in all of these names, whether it's Apple or Facebook or go over to Microsoft, wherever you want to look, I think that there are many, many names out there that actually they might look like their P.E. is high, but you also have yeah. to understand what is this company now versus what they were two years ago or three years ago? Different companies and they've got different revenue streams. That's why I think some of these P.E.s are a little they're not as stretched yep. as people think. I'll give, you, I'll give you a shout out. I've been filling in for Scott on this program for years now, and, and you've been riding that Microsoft train since they rolled out that stupid little animated paperclip. So congratulations on a great Microsoft <laughs> <You're right>. call. <laughs> all right. <Thank> you. <laughs> Clippy. So let's put some action on all of this talk and hit some more of our team's moves here. All right, Stephanie Leak, we'll begin with you. You sold out of one name, bought back into another. You also added Emerson, not a name we talk about a lot. No, I know. Union Pacific, I sold. Kind of disappointing, actually. They beat, they raised, and the stock has barely done anything all year long. Still a great company, great management team. I think the OR can certainly continue to, to uh, expand. But I just think that Emerson is a better story. They have better order momentum headed into fiscal 22. Um, and it really is uh, they're going to benefit from the price cost headwinds reversing next year. They have a very strong free cash flow. 5% free cash flow yield, 25% discount to the group. So like Emerson, it's now my largest, even bigger than Boeing. Um, so that says something. Um, and you get a yield, nice yield while, while you wait for the recovery. Um, Aptiv is a, new, is a new name. I've owned it in the past. And it simply is it's, it's dropped. 10% from its high because of supply chain issues. And I just think this is the best auto parts, auto tech, EV play in the industry. It's not cheap by any means, but this is the best in class management team where they're growing over market. Last quarter, they grew over market by 17%. So they're taking market share. They've got good products. And so I'm back in. All right, there you go. All right, Josh, this is a name. Again, I'll give you a lot of credit like I just did on the Microsoft called MasterCard. You've been right. You've been long on this. But it was just time to sell. Why? Why now? I'm in the stock, like, I think almost 10 years. And uh, it's obviously a large gain. This has been one of the best performing stocks maybe of all time since its IPO. But as much as I come on and talk about tuning out the noise and talk about, like, ignoring volatility and, and riding through it, and I've certainly done that with MasterCard, sometimes the world does mater materially change. And sometimes you're forced to reevaluate whether or not the risk-reward is still uh, where it was, even in a stock that you've fallen in love with, as I had with MasterCard. So there was a major development yesterday that I don't think anybody in the payment space can afford to ignore. 
especially the big credit card companies that feast on e-commerce. And that was what Amazon announced with the firm. So having having that ability to pay in installments versus racking up credit card debt at a higher interest rate for the consumer, Amazon sees this as being the right thing for their consumers to offer this. And Amazon is going to turbocharge worldwide acceptance, especially here in the U.S., but worldwide acceptance of this format of paying versus high interest credit card debt. Um, and by the way, you ever notice interest rates have been zero for 10 years. Credit card rates haven't come down. It's a great business, but yep. this is going to be a slightly less great business now. So um, uh, Square bought uh, Afterpay, which is another one of these installment pay names. I think I cannot ignore anymore that high interest rate credit card business is now very much at risk in many aspects of our lives. You look at the stock's relative strength at 36. It's one of the only large cap yeah. growth names going down while the market makes new highs. And I just felt there's more risk to the downside than, than there is potential reward. So I exited the position, and I thank everyone at MasterCard very much for all that they've done over the years. It was under $100 stock five years ago, 350 today as well. By the way, watch Klarna in Sweden as well. All right, guys, thank you. All right, Zoom. All doom and gloom, at least today. Shares being hammered despite posting its first ever billion dollar quarter. We're going to find out why in your call of the day. Halftime is back in two minutes. Stick around. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry leading on time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. What's left of Hurricane Ida is likely to cause flash flooding in parts of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Maryland, where it may dump 6 to 10 inches of rain. The storm is then expected to move into New England with potentially heavy rain. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes is in a San Jose courtroom, jury selection beginning today for her fraud trial. Prosecutors say that she swindled investors out of hundreds of millions of dollars and also put thousands of lives at risk with blood test technology that did not work. Holmes, meantime, has pleaded not guilty. And on the news, what's ahead for the most anticipated white-collar trial in years? That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Walgreens, the latest big company to raise its minimum wage. Starting in October, it will begin increasing pay. 
to at least $15 per hour. Its previous minimum was as low as $10 per hour. And the snail darter is no longer in danger. The tiny fish became notorious for blocking a federal dam project in Tennessee as part of efforts to save the species from extinction. And it was successful. No longer in danger. Brian, I'll send it back to you. I had next month on my snail darter fan duel. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. All right, shares of Zoom sinking today despite beating estimates yesterday. Yet Bank of America reiterating its buy rating on the stock. Josh, you sold the stock in June. I'm sure you're glad you did. Yeah, I think Zoom's a great company, but it, this was always going to be a story about tougher comps. Like, there's just, it's unavoidable. And the best example of that is my kids are both starting school this week. Neither one of them are starting with any, there's no talk of there being Zoom classes of any kind. One's going to high school, one's going to middle school, and they're doing five days a week of school. Not hybrid, not, uh uh-oh, if there's an infection uptick in Nassau County, there might be Zoom for two weeks. It's just not going to happen. That's one very small example. Another one is talking to clients where we used to do these Zooms like it was the most important thing. Now they're like... Dude, just hit me on my cell phone. I don't have time for the, the Zoom stuff. And I feel the same way. Yeah. So the comps are going to be tough going forward. I think that's the problem with the company. They had great results, but this is out of their control. We're doing more stuff in person now, and that's how it's going to be going forward. True. Steph, AT&T added to Citigroup's positive catalyst watch list, whatever that is, but you own it. <laughs> I do own it. It's been disappointing. It's down 5% year to date. It's been it's down 1% in the past year. But it trades at eight times earnings. We know they're cutting the dividend from seven and a half to probably something like three and a half, four percent. That's still very attractive in my book. A nice diversification story. I like their asset sales. I like the fact that they're going to focus on their core operations. I like the fact that they have a lot they can do in terms of cost cutting. They're simplifying simplifying themselves. They're shrinking to grow. And I really like those kinds of stories. And I get this yield while I wait. All right, good stuff. All right, stay with us here on Halftime. Pete's latest trades and unusual activity, they are next. RBC is highlighting companies popular with ESG fund managers, but less so with general investors. Several are significantly outpacing the S&P 500, which is up 18% in six months. On the list, Agilent Technologies, Edwards Life Sciences, and Waste Management are all up 40% or more in the same time period, showing more investors are pouring into these kind of stocks. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, time now for unusual activity. Pete, FXI and Merck, what are you seeing? I'm going to start off with Merck for you, Brian. Now, this is a stock that's been sort of trapped like Merck oftentimes does, somewhere between 74 and 77. Here it is just below 77. We've got a monstrous trade here, and it's unusual because they're going all the way out to December. Everything else has been very short term. They've gone to December. They're buying the 82 and a half calls, 23,000 of those calls. And oh, by the way, 
all in one print for a dollar. So that one definitely stuck out for me. Somebody looking for this name to maybe break out to the upside, but buying enough time to see that actually happen. Next is the FXI. Now, the FXI, going back about 10, 11 days ago, we finally started to see a turn in buying in some of the Chinese names, but all specifically in the FXI. We started to see them buying the 39 strike calls out in September. Now they're buying again, but they're going all the way out to December again. That's unusual. Yep. And they're buying the 41 calls. They bought 11,000 of those calls, Brian. So very aggressive buying in that name once again and looking for more upside out of these Chinese stocks. Got it, Pete. Thank you very much. All right, moving on. CrowdStrike reporting earnings after the bell. It's been hot. Shares more than doubling in a year. Coming up, we'll debate. There's still time to add it to your portfolio. That's next. All right, welcome back. It has been a good month for cybersecurity stocks, and that's an understatement. CrowdStrike up 12% this month and up over 30% of the year. They report their earnings after the bell. Josh, Tell us about CrowdStrike. You own it. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, you know, this is a stock that is up. This is a stock that is up like 130 percent over the last year or something. The S&P is up 30 percent in that same period of time. So it's already worked. It's been a huge performer. And now the stakes are higher. So I think you need a really big beat and raise. They're supposed to do three hundred twenty three million for the quarter in revenue and about nine cents in, in earnings per share. If you don't get upside on that, plus a, a raise guidance for the rest of this year, stock will probably pull back. So I would not be chasing it here if you're not in it. If you don't get a sell-off and a chance mm-hmm. to buy it tomorrow, so be it. But if you do, to me, that's a, a better way to get in than to hope and pray for a great upside quarter, given how much the stock's already up. So I love it, but I, I don't want people yeah. to think they're buying a cheap stock here because they're not. Liz, your take on the space. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not just a good month for the space. I think it's a good era for the space because as digitization continues to move forward and it was catapulted by COVID-19, we're going to continue to need cybersecurity. And something really interesting about it is that cybersecurity stocks have, over a long-term period, a 0.98 correlation to technology. But over the last six months, that's come down to 0.89. Still high, but it's come down. And what have the last six months been about? Interest rates. So it could suggest that cybersecurity is a part of tech that's not quite as sensitive to rates. So as we move into a rising rate cycle, it's probably a good place to be. All right. Good stuff there. Ask Halftime is next. There may still be time to send in your questions by video. We're going to play some of them, not just today, but down the road on the air as well. You can email us at askhalftimecnbc.com. If you're shy as well, we're back right after this. All right, welcome back. The Investment Committee is answering some of your questions. First up, this one goes to Stephanie. It's from Andy in Iowa. What are your thoughts, Steph, on Anaplan? I like it. Um, I'm not buying it for the quarter. It's always volatile around the quarter. But if it were to be weak on the quarter, I would absolutely buy more. It's down 13% year to date. It trades at a three multiple point discount to the group. It's a play on enterprise spend recovering. And we've seen that. Workday, Cisco, Microsoft, Network Appliance all have started to see an improvement in enterprise IT spend. This is exactly on that theme. And oh, by the way, you have a new CFO who I think is going to do a much better job in terms of execution and communication. All right. Next up for Josh, and it's John from Michigan. He asks, 
Do you think the long-term trends for upstart holdings will continue? And by the way, John, or Josh, you actually had the name as one of your second-half picks back on late June, June 22nd on the show. Stocks are more than 80% since then. Great stuff. So what do you think now? Yes, I was just going to say, like, mo- a lot of the gains that I would have expected in this stock over the next couple of years have just occurred in the last two months. And that's because this company is uh, executing. If you remember, they are being like the fintech outsourcer for all these banks that can't build it themselves to originate loans on the Internet. And then they're keeping a piece of that loan as part of their upside. It's a sick business. Um, It's up huge. What I would do if I own the stock already and you expect more gains, I would probably use either a 10 or a 50 day trailing moving average. And I would look at that on a weekly closing basis, the 50 day. So if you see a Friday close where this stock closes below its rising 50 day, that might tell you the trade is over, time to exit, uh, that kind of thing. That's how I would handle it from here. All right, Liz, from James in St. Louis. Having recently started a Roth on my 30th birthday, I'd like to add a longer term ETF, the QQQ, JEPI, or maybe something else. Hi, James. Uh, first of all, I'm jealous that you're only 30, but what that means is that time is on your side, and I've got a better idea for you. I would do an ETF that is the S&P and split it with a small cap ETF because you're going to ride through a lot of market cycles in that time, and there's probably good upside and good diversification in both of those. All right. Thank you all very much, and thank you for sending in your questions. We're going to take a short break. The final trades are next. All right, time now for your final trade. Pete, kick it off. All right, I'm going to give you Capital One, Brian. And the reason I am is when you look at what this company did last quarter and how they crushed their earnings and now they got a downgrade, they got pushed down significantly yesterday, a little bit today early. Yeah. I think this is a name that's the opportunity now to buy. Liz. As a surprise to absolutely no one, small caps and more specifically small cap growth. They're trying to make a comeback, and uh, okay. I like growth, particularly for the healthcare exposure. Josh, I think the PayPal sub three hundred dollars per share train is leaving the station. I own some; wish I owned more. If I yep. didn't own it, I would be a buyer today. Steph, Gap Stores. I like the restructuring story. Just beginning. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody, for watching Halftime Report. I will see you tonight at 5 p.m. on Fast Money and 6 o'clock for a special as well. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. 
We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.